Well, good morning, First Family. How good to be together, amen? I'm telling you, it is a joy to be in the house of the Lord. If you're glad, as glad as I am that it's 20 degrees warmer this week than last, say amen. Whoo, man, I don't know how those people live like that in other parts of the world. Here's the thing about it. Today is Sanctity of Human Life Day. About 50-ish years ago, we set this Sunday, the third Sunday of January, aside as a time and a moment to say, hey, let's remember just what an amazing and beautiful gift it is that God has given us life. Now, we chose this Sunday because it's the closest one to when the Roe versus Wade decision was made 50-ish years ago, and we recognize that law no longer exists. But here's the thing about it. Would you believe that there are still people who don't understand the value and power of life? It's shocking to me. If you need a reminder, then here's what I want you to do. Take a selfie of yourself and look carefully at it. Here's what you'll see. One who bears the image of God himself. The fingerprints of God are all over that person in the selfie. The amazing gift that is life is what God has given us, and that's what brings us here today. Friends, today, I want to encourage you, recognize that God has given you an incredible gift, life itself. A lot of times when we celebrate this Sunday, we think it's about abortion, and indeed it is. It is comically tragic that we've aborted 63 million Americans in the last 50-ish years. It's absurd. We will regret that for a long time to come. I believe it is a stain on our nation. But setting that aside, I believe God wants us to understand just how powerful your life is too. It's not just babies that are powerful, although they are that too, but you are as well. I want us to pause right now and pray that we remember just how sanctified our lives really are. We're grateful, Lord Jesus, that you came and gave us life. You breathed it into us. You created us, crafting us in our mother's wombs, and you gave us life. It was yours to give, and you gave it. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you. We remember today just how precious that gift is. We celebrate that you've been so good to us, and we exalt you for not just giving us life, but giving us eternal life. You knew, Lord Jesus, that on our own we were given to sin, but you came to free us from that. So today we thank you for the sanctity of our own lives, but also of eternal life too. So in these brief moments we'll share, Father God, we pray that you would meet with us now. Speak powerfully, boldly into our hearts and our minds, and let us go home, Lord, changed by your power and your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now the passage we've chosen for today is Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 8. My friend Jack read it so well for us a minute ago, and this follows up close on the heels to what we read last week. Last week we read the first two verses of Romans, and we said God wants us to live transformed lives. Well, when we get to the next section, verses 3 to 8, We're going to say this with clarity. God wants us to live generously. 
Now, as soon as I say that, somebody's going to say, up, oh, it's to talk about money. You're wrong. If the only way you're being generous is with money, then you are doing it wrong. The act of generosity does not start with our pocketbook. It starts with our hearts. It flows from the inside out. And I want to encourage you, friends, to recognize here's where we begin expressing that transformed life that Paul talked about in the first two verses. What does living transformed look like? Well, it looks like living generously. Here's where it begins, though, and it starts with the inside, with a humble self-evaluation. When you read in verse 3, read it again with me. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself or herself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So let's begin where Paul does in verse 3 and celebrate that God's grace is what gives us the chance to live generously. He pours it out freely. It's his to give, and he gives it in abundance. Imagine having so much of it that you can afford to just give it away. This is the essence of what God is doing, pouring it out richly, freely, lavishly on each one of us. Now, many times when we look at ourselves, we say we don't know why he wants to. But I want you to notice, Paul's not interested in talking about why you think you deserve it. He just wants to talk about how good God is in giving it. If you're one who would say, I don't deserve it, then welcome to the club. It is a mark, though, of God's grace that he gives it anyway. Remember, grace is what I couldn't earn, didn't deserve, but God gave it to me anyway. And when I realize that, then humility, humility flows or should right away. Let's pause here to say this. Humility is a mark of a crucified life. Crucified life. We talked about this last week. One who lives with the idea that the life, death, and resurrection of Christ lives in me. It's no longer my life to live. It's Christ that has done it in me. And because he's done it in me and now through me, humility is what I choose. Humility is not thinking less of myself, it's thinking of myself less. We live in a culture that says something else, that says you're the only one who matters, you deserve it. Seek your own fulfillment, seek your own truth, seek your own wisdom. Can I tell you, friends, it's a trap, an absolute trap. There's no way that you will ever be enough all on your own. There must be something more. Our lives must be, mean something more or they wouldn't be so holy. Why would God have given it to us in the first place? Well, I submit to you today that the reason he did is to live for his glory. And that starts by living the crucified life with humility. Now, the thing is, we have a problem. And it's a big one when we choose to want to live this crucified life, when we choose to want to live with humility, when we choose to want to be like Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. Jot that down if you would, Philippians chapter 2 where the Bible says that Jesus poured himself out, emptied himself for us. 
if I want to choose that same pathway, then I have a problem, and it's a big one. Ego. That part within me that's selfish. I had no idea how selfish I was until I got married. I had no idea how still selfish I was until our son was born. I want what I want, and why not? Who deserves it more, right? Yeah, you weren't going to say amen to that. I knew you wouldn't. People would be saying, huh, huh, huh. So I'm going to have to do something about that ego. I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to find a way to put it down. I'm going to have to be proactive about it. I'm going to have to stalk it. I'm going to have to hunt it. I want to show you a picture I found recently, and it's a great story. My friend Arnold's bringing it up on the screen now. This is Jim Corbett. Jim Corbett lived about 100 years ago. This is him with a dead cat because there's no better kind. I'll just put that there and let, let you go with that as you will. This is a tiger that he stalked and hunted. Now, the reason I bring Mr. Corbett to you today is because of the story that he lived and is so beautifully told in a book I read not long ago called No Beast So Fierce. He's hunting another tiger, kind of like this one, in the jungles of Nepal and India, where those two countries come together. That's a rich and fertile jungle, and there are villages throughout that, but there are also tigers. And this one particular tiger, the Champwa tiger, this one particular tiger, she was incredibly fierce. Over the course of seven years, she killed 436 people. That's unbelievable, isn't it? So the people of that region realized they had a problem. They called the State Departments of India and Nepal, and they said, we need you to send us some help. We can't live this way. So they called Mr. Corbett, and Mr. Corbett came. And this is what he did. He spent two years stalking this tiger, learning her habits, learning her traits, learning how she liked to hunt, learning how she went from place to place, learning the region, learning all of the patterns that she had. And at the end of that two years, she, they laid a trap for her. Mr. Corbett was the one who fired the deadly shot. She died with that shot less than 20 feet from where Mr. Corbett was standing. After all that, she still nearly won. Friends, I want to tell you, that beast so fierce, that's tame compared to the ego that lives within us. If we're going to live with humility, we're going to have to stalk our ego and hunt it and find ways to put it down. Good news is we already know our patterns. We know those places where Satan's going to get us, where he's going to hit us, where he's going to come after us, and he's going to say, uh-huh, I got you, I got you. But here's the good thing. Our God doesn't call us to be perfect. He calls us to be faithful. This is what God wants for us, and humility is a key factor in that. Let's take this up, for example. Humility reveals a sober and reasonable response to how I see myself. You go to Isaiah chapter 6. One of the things you'll see there is that Isaiah, the prophet, has encountered God himself seated on the throne. And what is it that Isaiah says? Oh, I'm going to stand next to you, God. I'm so good, I'm so smart, I'm so wise, I'm going to stand next to you. No, no, he falls on his face and he says, Oh my goodness, I am undone. A word that really means exploded, 
There's no measure that I have to even stand in your presence. When the shepherds encounter the angels who come to tell them about Jesus' birth, they fall on their faces when we find our friend um, we find our friends who have come to arrest Jesus in John 18, the Roman soldiers, and when Jesus says, I am, they fall on their faces because Jesus has revealed who he really is. Can I tell you, friends, when we understand who God really is, humility will not be hard. It causes us to recognize that. And yet here's the other side to that. Humility is our response to God, but it's also the way that God picks us up and puts us on his shoulders and says, oh, friend, you belong to me. You are my child. I want you to consider this. How does God see you? I want to give you just four things. There's a list a mile long, but I want to give you just four things you can build on about how God sees you. One, I'm loved. Oh, friends, being loved There's a power and authority there. There's things we do for those we love that we wouldn't do for people that we don't. This is the measure of God's love for us. Here's the second element to it. I'm longed for. Maybe you've never had anybody that longed for you, but you do now. Our God longs for you. He desires time with you. His whole purpose in sending Jesus to die on the cross and to purchase your freedom was because he wanted you. Now, you might argue with that and say, well, I've done so many things. Well, that brings us to the third thing. Not only are you loved and longed for, you're forgiven and redeemed. Your past holds no sway because Jesus died to break you free from it. I don't know if that's good news for you, but I hope it is, and I hope it breaks the shackles that maybe you've allowed to wrap around your ankles. See, a lot of us, we let our past determine our future. Can I tell you today, friends, if you do that, you'll never have anything more than you've already had. Our God calls you to think about it differently. You are loved. You are longed for. You are forgiven and redeemed, and get this, you're gifted. Oh, goodness. Hang on to that, because that's where we're going to bridge into the next section. I want to give you some things to plug in real quickly here. One, humility frees me from the trap of arrogance. I will never be enough all by myself. The sooner I acknowledge that, embrace that, and live in that, the sooner I can recognize I was never supposed to be enough all by myself. Humility frees me from that trap. God's first and best gift to us this is grace. Drink deeply from it, my friends, because we need it, each of us, daily. I think that's one reason that the proclamation is that those things are new every morning. Let's move quickly. Faithful cooperation flows from our humility. For as in one body we have many members, verse 4 says, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. I want you to think for a moment about the diverse unity of the body. 
the diverse unity. Now, I realize those two things don't necessarily go together. Something that's unified isn't terribly diverse. Something that's diverse can't terribly be unified. But put this together with me and go with me on this journey for a minute. I want you to think about the very form of yourself right here, all right? Your body. Did you know that there are approximately 78 organs, depending on how you count them, 78 organs, 204 bones that compose you, and that every day, all day, all week, all month, all year, those systems are working. They are functioning whether you tell them to or not. Our input, through things like seeing and hearing things or eating, that kicks off a whole nother process. I want you to consider with me how all of these various and disparate groups function as one unit with the idea of a one purpose, self-preservation. Now, here's the thing. Some of you will come at me and you'll say, you know, Darren, only five of those, those organ groups are really necessary for life. You can live without the other things. Well, yes, yes, it's true, but when one part of the body suffers, it causes everything else to have to work harder to make up for that one. If you need an example of that, then I invite you to take your shoe off right now and kick the pew ahead of you. Kick it hard as you like now and see if that one little member, your toe, doesn't hurt. And if you could, tell the truth now, you would bring it right up and kiss it right there on you, wouldn't you? To try to bring some peace and healing to that one little member. You see, an amazing thing God has done in creating our bodies like he has. It is an amazing process. Something as simple as eating, something we're going to do when we're done here, right? Something as simple as eating. We make the decision to put it in our mouths, but that just kicks off the process. Our tongue takes it, our esophagus moves it, our stomach works it, and then it works on down through the digestive system. And this is the thing. What part of that did you have a role in? Only in putting it in your mouth and chewing it. Swallowing it, that's your, the end of your part. Everything else is automatic. This is the amazing diverse unity that God has created in your, Bible, in, in your body. And now let's turn the page, you might say, and talk about it, how that's really supposed to work. It's supposed to be the same way with our spiritual unity. Let me say that again. It's supposed to be the same way with our spiritual unity. Each of us is gifted in different ways. Each of us has been blessed. And when we use that blessing to bless others and bless God, then an amazing thing takes place. As we use our diversity, unity erupts. There's a generosity of our Christ-centered unity. When we each are willing to give of ourselves, a transformation takes place. Now, the temptation is to say, well, I don't really have much. All right? There's going to be a video we're going to show you, about 30 seconds long in just a second, all right? I want to set it up for you, though, okay? And I want you to think with me about that comment of, I don't have much to offer. The video you're going to see is a combination of five things, just five elements. Hydrogen peroxide yeast, food coloring, hot water, and dish soap. That's it. 
If I was to come to your house, I bet you'd have all five of them. If you didn't, it wouldn't take long to go to Walmart or H-E-B and get them, all right? You take these things separately, they're just household stuff. But when you put them together, when you put them together, an amazing transformation takes place. I want to introduce you, the video is going to be by a man named Mark Rober. Mark is a wildly popular YouTube video artist. He has around 30 million subscribers, including me. I'll tell you that right now. Mark set out to do the world's largest combination of those five elements. Hot water, yeast, hydrogen peroxide, food coloring, and uh, dish soap. That's all that's in what you're about to see. His argument was, would it work if we did it instead of small samples and really big ones? Take a look at the video. Now, once you look at that thermal image, their idea was to fill the swimming pool. <laughs> the camera was on the edge of the pool. Yes. So the, the reality is they not only met their goal, but exceeded it. Five things. Five things that you'll find in your home. Now you might say, but Darren, they had like 35 gallons of hydrogen peroxide and, and 150 cakes of yeast and uh, all those others. It's still the same five ingredients, friends. If I was to do it here, then we'd get the same reaction. This is what happens when each one of them brings their small measure, however small it might be, to the table and gives it to the greater whole. Now, I called your attention to that thermal image, right? Because here's what you don't necessarily see. If you're just watching it, then you think it's just cool, and it is. But when you see the thermal image, you realize there's something not cool about it, and that's the reaction heat. It's about 200 degrees, those bubbles. And as the reaction occurs, it creates that heat. This is what happens when people jump in and serve. There's a heat that's given off, an excitement, an enthusiasm, a passion. And I want to tell you, friends, this is what God loves to do. When people come to the table and they say, hey, we just want to serve Jesus and we want to serve Jesus together. This is what God longs for us to do. Trust him. Step out in faith. Offer whatever we might have in the gifts that he's given us and let him go from there. I want to give you a couple things to take home with you. Plug this into your life. Finding unity in our adversity means we're going to have to look for it. Now, that experiment that you saw a second ago, it's called elephant's toothpaste. You can find millions of copies of it on, online. And that version is now a little bit dated. It's, that was the world's largest one three years ago. Now they've expanded it much bigger than that. But I want you to, the reason I'm pulling that out of you is if those ingredients are just left to themselves, they will never create that kind of reaction. They have to choose unity, or somebody has to choose it for them. I want to encourage you to recognize unity in the body of Christ must be chosen too. But here's the overflow of unity. Unity gives room for generosity. When you realize it's not a shortage that I have, but an overage. I can serve this person because I know this person is going to serve me. 
I can afford to give to Jesus and trust him with it because I know that somebody will come behind it. Friends, this is the essence of generosity and the freedom that we have because of it. That brings us down to verses 6 to 8, loving participation. What then will motivate us? What will cause us to step out? What will cause us to say, okay, I'll take all these gifts that I have, even if I don't know what they are, and I'll give them to the Lord and let him use them. That's the Apostle Paul's statements there in verses 6 to 8. Whatever gift you have, use it freely. Use it abundantly. Throw caution to the wind and pour it out. And here's the thing about it. Distinctive people, distinctive gifts. We're not losing ourselves in our unity. No, our distinctiveness is all the more evident. But we find something that we wouldn't have found otherwise. An energy, a heat, a reaction. Our gifts are as unique as each one of us are. There's a list of gifts here, and each of these gifts have one thing in common. They're granted by God, given to us, and uniquely slanted toward one goal, God's glory. Each believer, each person who has accepted Christ has at least one of these gifts. Now you might say, well, I don't know what mine are. I got good news for you. In this week's banner, you're going to find a link to a spiritual gift survey. Now, it's not ironclad. And if you are like me, you've probably done a million of these. But it wouldn't hurt you to do one more just to see how you've changed. Put your information into that. Tell it the truth, and it will tell you where you are gifted. I'll tell you this. It's a great way to discover how to use who God has made you. Okay, Darren. What should I expect then? What's the payoff? Why should I put myself out this way? If you begin to use your gifts, here's a few things that I think you can expect to experience. One, God to be glorified. Now, does that mean that there will be a lot of people that get saved because of you using your gift? Maybe. Maybe not. But God doesn't ask us to be successful. He asks us to be faithful. Faithful means that I use my gifts even if nobody responds. Faithful means I keep walking, I keep trusting him, I keep resting in the goodness that is his goodwill for me, and I keep trusting that he'll be glorified just simply by me using the gifts he's given me. Here's a second piece to it, God's kingdom edified because of your obedience. You know, today's been a really special day. We baptized two in the early service and now two more in the later one. I believe the kingdom is better for Kristen and Michael stepping out and saying, I will be obedient to what the Lord has said to me. Friends, I want to tell you, this is what happens when God's people step up and use the gifts God has given them. It betters the kingdom. It strengthens the kingdom and makes it a place where God is glorified. And here's the last piece of it, personal joy because you use them. Now, this one's rather egocentric, you might say, but bear with me while I share a personal story. I love getting to be your pastor. I look forward to Sunday like no other day of the week. On Sunday mornings, I set the alarm for six. Rare is the Sunday that, it actually, that I actually make it that far. 
Most time I wake up before that, I'm like, hey, let's go. Oh, it's only 5.30. We'll have to wait for church a little longer. I love getting ready to come to you. I can't believe that you let me do this. And there's a part of me that's a little bit afraid. Hey, you'll go, who is this knucklehead? Let's run him off and find somebody who knows what they're doing. I want to tell you, though, there's a joy that comes from using what God has given you. My gifts, preaching and teaching, they are what I choose to use for God's glory. It's not about Darren. It never has been. I hope it never is. But it is a chance that I can use my gifts. Now, for some of you, you saw them up here on the stage just a minute ago. And we had a broad diversity of people up here singing, knowing them as I do. We had lots of different professions, lots of different training backgrounds, lots of different gifts, and all of them here using their talents for the glory of God. This is what it's supposed to look like, friends. You might say, well, I can't do what you do or what they do. I'm reminded of what a sweet, dear saint of God told me some years ago. We were doing revivals down near Houston. It was hot, and we'd been away from the house all day. We'd been traveling for about a month and a half, maybe two months. And we came home and found that all of the clothing in the host home that we had, had, had been assigned to was missing from our suitcases. We got a laundry thief. There better be a tall one. That's my first thought. I came around the corner, and there I found our hostess, the lady who owned the house, Miss Chrisman, finishing up the folding and laundry of all of our clothing. I was dumbstruck. My mother had taught me enough good manners to push back and say, Miss Christmas, you shouldn't have done that. She was about five foot nothing, a hundred and nothing, big beehive hair. Do you remember those in the day? She put her hands on her hips. I knew I was in trouble then. And she said, now listen to me. I can't do what you do, Darren, but I can do what I do. And I won't tell you how to serve the Lord on your end if you won't tell me how to serve the Lord on mine. Yes, ma'am. I went and sat down and had a Dr. Pepper and watched the ball game like she told me to. This is the essence of it, my friends. God does not ask you to do anything that he hasn't gifted you to. I want to give you this last couple of things to plug into your life. One, what's your gift? The second question is, are you using it? If you know what your gift is, then find places to plug it in. And if you don't know a place to plug it in, then come talk to us, the shepherds of your church. We will help you find it. I want to give you one good, good word, and we'll be done. God has uniquely gifted each of us in our diversity so his kingdom is served better. But if you don't use your gift, then the kingdom will have to go without it. What a tragedy. What a shame. So now it comes to you, friends. What will you do with the transformation that Jesus wanted to bring? Will you live generously or live stingily? Are you Ebenezer Scrooge? At the beginning or at the end? I want to encourage you today, friends, to look into the face of our Savior and answer that question. Oh, I don't mean die and do it. I mean do it now. What is it that Jesus would say to you? You might say, well, I, I don't know. I've never actually talked to Jesus. Well, here's a good day to start.
If you've never invited Jesus to be the Lord and Master of your life personally, not that you know about him, but that you've invited him to be the Lord and the Savior of your life, then today's a good day to do that. We're going to stand and we're going to sing in just a second, and I'll be waiting right down here. I'm not going to sing long, so if you want to respond, you better move. Maybe you need to respond like Kristen and Michael did. Come down and let's talk about what being baptized means. Perhaps you need someone to pray with you. I'd be delighted to do so. Maybe you want to be a part of what God is doing here. I believe the best days of First Baptist are yet ahead. I hope that you do too. And if you want to be a part of what God is doing here and you're not already a member, then come down and let's talk about how you can do that. This is the day you will do something with the transformation Jesus wanted to bring you. Will you live generously or not? Let's pray together.